0: We are continuing our walk through the book of Job this morning, and so I'd encourage you to turn now to Job chapter 38. Hope is to cover chapters 38 through 41 this morning. We won't read all four chapters, although we will try to walk through them and and cover most of what's here. But just to give us an overall picture of what God is now saying to Job, I'd like to read to you from the 40th chapter. In the first nine verses, Job 41 through 9. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, and I will not answer, even twice and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you, and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Or do you have an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Father, as we look at Your Word This morning, we thank you that your voice is like the thunder. God, we thank you that you are God and there is no other. We thank you for those moments when we realize, as Job does here, how small we are. Remind us of these things. Remind us that you are the great God and that you are the good God and that we desperately need to bow to and rely upon you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. So says Proverbs 15.3. But I wonder how often we keep that fact in mind when we find ourselves tempted like Job to complain and argue. Does it occur to you, does it occur to me that God is watching us? when we're angry in traffic, when we're flustered with our kids, when we're fighting with the lawnmower, when we're banging our fist on the top of the computer. In those moments, do you remember that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good? And do you remember that the ears of the Lord are in every place, too? That He can hear exactly what you're thinking, even when it's muttered under your breath or murmured only in the deep recesses of your heart. It's healthy and it's sanctifying to remember that God always sees us and that God always hears us. And if there's ever a book that illustrates that fact, I think it would be the book of Job. Because for nearly 30 chapters, chapters 3 through 31, Job and his friends, you remember, were bickering back and forth at one another. And on Job's part, he was bickering at God himself. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar put God in a box and they put Job on the witness stand by asserting again and again that the only reason God would allow Job to suffer as he had, to lose his health, to lose his wealth, to lose his ten children, the only reason God would do that would be as a recompense for some wicked act. God doesn't let righteous people suffer, they said to Job. So for all this to happen to you, Job, you must have done something really awful. And Job snapped right back at them consistently. You're right. Calamity is supposed to happen to bad people. But I'm not guilty. I haven't done anything to deserve this. And God is not treating me fairly. It's quite an argument that goes on for 29 chapters. These men kicked up a lot of dust. They said a number of harsh things and arrogant things and even outlandish things to one another and about God. And I wonder in the midst of those chapters if it ever occurred to them. That the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I wonder if it ever occurred to them that God, too, was listening in on their conversation. That this young man, Elihu, in chapters 32 through 37, wasn't the only bystander standing on the outskirts of the ash heap overhearing and being appalled by the way in which these men treated one another and the way in which they bandied about the name of God, as loosely as if they were arguing about football or modern art. I wonder if they ever stopped to remember that God himself was also sitting around the ash heap with them. And again, I wonder if those kinds of thoughts ever occur to us. Some of us perhaps like to get into intellectual scrums with people. We like to bat ideas back and forth. And sometimes that can be like iron sharpening iron. And it's one thing to do that if we're debating politics or sports or economic theory or even ethics. Even then, God is listening. Even then, the eyes of the Lord and the ears of the Lord are in every place. God is listening to how we handle ourselves how we treat other people, whether we're speaking with wisdom or just blowing hot air. But I have to believe that He takes even greater interest when He Himself is the subject of the debate. Don't you think? God is listening to our discussions in Sunday school, to our debates with our unbelieving friends and co-workers. He's reading the kinds of comments that we leave on the Christian blogs. And that should give us pause to think about the way in which we talk about God. Do we speak of him even when we're disagreeing with reverence for his name and love for other people? And do we really know what we're talking about? Are our beliefs about God and our statements about God founded in Scripture? Or are we just sometimes giving our own opinions and making unfounded claims like Job and Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar were doing for 29 chapters. I say I wonder if it ever occurred to Job and his friends that the eyes of the Lord were on the ash heap that morning, keeping watch on all that these men were saying and how they were saying it. I wonder if they ever thought about what God himself might say as he listened if he were to join in the discussion. At the very least, we know that that question, what might God be thinking, occurred to the young man Elihu in chapters 32 through 37. He reminded Job and his friends that God might well be listening and that God might have some harsh words to say in correction for them were he actually to come and join in the conversation. In fact, Elihu began to describe what it might be like if God were to show up at the ash heap. Listen closely, he says in chapter 37, verse 2. Listen closely to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that goes out from his mouth. And then in verse 22 of that same chapter, he says, Out of the north comes gold and splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. And if you read the end of Elihu's speech in chapter 37, what he is saying all throughout that chapter is God is going to come. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Job, God is going to come and he is going to come like a storm into this conversation. The sky is going to turn golden, the clouds are going to darken, the thunder is going to clap, and God himself is going to be riding on that storm, and he is going to break in the discussion fiercely. And in chapter 38 verse 1, we read that God did indeed answer Job, quote, out of the whirlwind. Out of the storm, God came fiercely into the midst of this conversation. And the question this morning is simply, what did God say? Chapters 38 through 41 are almost wholly taken up with the words of God. What did God say after these men for 29 chapters had argued back and forth? Specifically, what did God say to Job? That's who he addresses In these chapters, the Lord answered Job 38.1 out of the whirlwind. What did God say to Job? Remember that for the better part of 29 chapters, Job had defended himself, declared his own righteousness, belittled his friends, and accused God of wounding him, quote, without cause, chapter 9.17. Or as Elihu said in chapter 32.2, Job justified himself before God. Indeed, the translation of Job 32.2 might well be Job justified himself rather than God, or perhaps even Job justified himself more than God. And whether or not that's what the Hebrew in verse 2 of chapter 32 says, that's what Job did. He justified himself more than God. Job had ranted on and on about how while he had done right by God, God had done wrong by him. Tall claims, weren't they? Dangerous claims, I think. And so the question is, given Job's accusations against God, what will God say to such a man as Job? How does God answer Job's criticisms of him? Well, first we should notice, before we look at the actual answers, that God did not have to answer. God did not have to reply to Job's ranting and raving. He's not obligated to... To defend himself against our charges. And so if he does answer. It's a mercy. It's a gift. Yes, we're going to hear God say to Job some very hard things in chapters 38 through 41. He answered Job not with a gentle voice, but out of the whirlwind. But it was a gift to Job and to us that God answered at all. God could have left Job in his delusion. And he could have left us wondering if perhaps Job was right about God being unfair. But he answered Job. He responded to Job's accusations severely and yet mercifully. And what did he say? Well, to summarize it succinctly, in chapters 38 through 41, God responds to Job's criticisms and accusations by saying... Excuse me? Excuse me? Have you ever said that to someone? When they spoke to you in a way that was outlandish or inappropriate? Excuse me? Perhaps you said it to your child when they sassed you or to a co-worker that made an inappropriate comment to you. Excuse me? In other words, where do you get off talking like this? That's what God, in essence, is saying to Job all throughout these four chapters. Excuse me? Excuse me? To be more specific, though, I think we can trace three basic quarrels that God has with Job. Three indictments that he lays at Job's feet. And I want to consider the first two somewhat briefly and then take the most of the sermon on the third one. So what did God say to such a man as Job? Number one, he said, Job, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. That's what he says, particularly in chapter 38, verse 2. In that verse, God asks, Who is this that darkens my counsel by words without knowledge? Words without knowledge. In other words, God is saying, Who is this who runs off at the mouth, who's saying all these words, but actually doesn't know what he's talking about? That's God's first indictment of Job. Job, you really don't know what you're saying. You're speaking without knowledge. Now, what did God mean by that? Very simply, he meant that Job had been wrong all along to pontificate on God's purposes in his suffering because Job didn't have all the information, Job didn't know all that God was doing. He didn't know, for instance, about the wager in heaven, about God's challenge to the devil in chapters 1 and 2. And therefore, Job also didn't know that God was allowing him to suffer, not as a punishment, but to prove to Satan that a man can lose everything and not lose his faith. Job didn't know that. Nor did Job know how or when or if God would bring about some reversal in the situation. There was a lot Job didn't know, and it wasn't wrong that he didn't know those things. In fact, God apparently did not want Job to know everything. So it wasn't his ignorance that was sinful. What was sinful that was, was that he spoke in his ignorance, that he spoke confidently and self righteously and accusingly toward God about things which he really didn't know. Do you see? There was a lot about Job's suffering that he had no idea about. There was a lot going on the scenes that he had no idea about. And yet, he made tall claims and strong statements about God and against God, nonetheless. And God's telling him in chapter 38, verse 2, that he'd been foolish. Had he known what went on in chapters 1 and 2, had Job known that he was suffering not because he had been deemed wicked by God, but because he had actually been seen as righteous by God, Job might not have complained so loudly. But since he didn't know, he should have kept his mouth closed. Since he didn't know, he should have refrained from words without knowledge. And there's application here to us all, isn't there? Surely we know a fair amount about God. There's a lot we do know. Indeed, we know more than Job did because we have the 66 books of the Old and the New Testaments that teach us the mind of God. And what we know about God, we should, with reverence, confess and testify to and delight in. But given all that we know about God, all that He's told us in His Word, even if we memorized it all and understood it all from cover to cover, there would still be a great deal about God's secret counsels that we have no idea about. God has told us enough, but He hasn't told us everything. For instance, the roads are slick today, and if you should leave today and your car slides on the water and you have an accident, chances are, you will not have been privy to the heavenly counsels in which God determined to allow it. Chances are you will not know all that God is doing by allowing that, quote, accident. You know that God will work it for your good if you love him and are called according to your purposes. Romans 8, 28 tells you that, but you probably won't know immediately if God allowed that to happen because he was trying to get your attention or because there's some orthopedist, That needs to hear about Jesus and you're going to be the person to share him with that person. Or if God is simply trying to prove to Satan the strength of your faith. That you're not going to lose control or lose faith when things go south on you. You don't know the answer to that question. Why is this happening? And even if you could figure those things out, there may be a hundred other reasons that the wreck happened that God will never tell you. Someone may have seen it and will drive more carefully down the road and save someone else's life, and you'll never know. Or the damage to the vehicle may reveal some fault to the manufacturer that will help them improve the vehicle and protect people in the future. And the list could go on and on. With the main point being, our knowledge of God and His heavenly counsels is extremely limited. And again, it must be said that it's not wrong or sinful that we don't know all the details, that our knowledge is limited. God doesn't intend for us to know everything. And awareness of that limitation, then, should shape the way in which we speak about God. In those areas where we know and He's told us we should speak with confidence and clarity and boldness, but in those areas where God has not explained everything or given us all the details... In our lives, in the lives of our loved ones and our friends, we need to learn to bow our knees and bite our tongues and admit that we don't have all the answers. We need to avoid running off at the mouth in our pontifications about why God allowed that to happen to you or why God is allowing this to happen to me. And we need especially to flee from the temptation to shake our fists in God's face and accuse Him of wrongdoing. You may not be able to see anything good coming from the tragedies in your life or in this world, but you can't see everything. And just because you can't see the reason or I can't see the reason doesn't mean there isn't a reason. So always remind yourself when tragedy strikes, and in every other situation too, of how little you really know and how limited is your field of vision. Don't assume that you have everything figured out. Bite your tongue. And you won't have to hear God say to you as he did to Job, you don't really know what you're talking about. That's the first thing God said to Job. The second thing that we should notice is that God told Job, Don't correct me. Don't correct me. I wonder if any of you have heard this phrase before. I think I heard it a few hundred times growing up, only it was, Don't correct me, son. Because I was quite a little know-it-all as a young boy. And some of you might add, and as a grown-up too, but that's the way it was. And I heard that phrase all the time, don't correct your father, don't correct your mother, don't correct me. And I've been hearing that phrase again the last few years from my own lips now. And some of you have heard it too. And that's the basic message that God is sending to Job in chapter 40. You'll notice it in verse 2 and again in verse 8. In chapter 40, verse 2, God says to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Now, what he means by calling Job a fault finder is obvious. Job had been trying to locate error in God and therefore to correct God in those errors. To correct the Almighty. And he also accused Job there in verse 2 of trying to reprove him, to correct him. Job is trying to correct his maker. And then in verse 8, God says the same kinds of things. Will you really annul my judgment? In other words, Job, do you really think you know better than I do? And then in the last half of verse 8, will you condemn me that you may be justified? And God uses four different Words. Job is a fault finder. Job is trying to reprove God. Job is trying to annul God's judgments. Job is trying to condemn God. And in all four places he's saying the same thing. Job thought himself wise enough not just to offer God some kindly advice, but actually to correct him on a few points. We saw this all throughout chapters 3 through 31, didn't we? Job accused God in chapter 19.6 of wrongdoing. He said in chapter 9.17 that God had wounded him without cause and so on. So not only was Job without knowledge, according to chapter 38, and not only did he spout off his ignorance to his friends, but he was even willing, unbelievably, to call God himself on the carpet and to correct him too. To tell him, let me teach you about justice, God. You're not quite right. Job tried to correct God, and so now we find God correcting him. And the lesson here is the same as it was in the last point. When you don't know what you're talking about, it's best to keep your mouth shut, right? And believe me, any time you are tempted to accuse God or to assert that He needs advice or correction... You're about to run your ship aground on one of those deserted islands where you really don't know what you're saying. Now, it's true, and I experienced this personally even today, it's true that earthly fathers are sometimes wrong when they correct their children. Sometimes we as parents need correction. But it's not the place of the young child to offer such reproof, even when it's needed. That's what we have wives for, right? And husbands. It's not the child's place to correct the parent. And how much less is it the child of God's place to correct our Heavenly Father, to correct the Almighty who never makes mistakes. He doesn't need correction and it would be inappropriate for us to correct Him even if He did. And so in those moments when God's ways don't seem or feel right to you, Remember that you don't know everything as well as your Heavenly Father knows it. Remember that He, and not you, is the Almighty. Remember what it was like to be a child and to think your parents were really missing the boat, only to grow up and realize that they knew some things that you didn't know when you were ten. And imagine how much more that will be your experience when you get to heaven and realize that God knew a great deal that you never know. And still won't know fully even when you're there. And if you feel that you just have to get some perceived heavenly injustice off your chest, then speak to God only. Don't go telling your friends that God has wronged you. Speak to God only. And speak to Him in humble questions and admissions of your confusion, which God is delighted to hear and will often graciously answer. Speak to Him humbly and Admitting that you're confused rather than in accusations and suggestions for correction and improvement. To put it simply, don't correct the Almighty. Number three, God said to Job, you're not God. Job, you're not God. That is the most significant and most lengthy of the charges that God laid at Job's Indeed, almost the entirety of these four chapters, 38 through 41, is dedicated to making this one point. God, over and over again in these chapters, reminded Job that he, and not Job, is the Almighty. That he, and not Job, is the creator of the universe. That he, and not Job, is the sustainer of the universe. He asked Job questions like, chapter 38, verse 4, Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Or chapter 39, verse 19, Job, did you give the horse its might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Or chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw Leviathan, the dragon monster? Can you draw him out with a hook? And each question piled up one upon the other is designed to remind Job of one thing. Job, you are not God. And since you and I are not God either, we might do well to look closely at some of God's questions to Job and to consider their application to our own lives. And if you read through chapters 38 through 41, you'll find that it's basically a series of questions showing Job how little he really knows and how little he really is. But if you read through carefully, you'll find that God didn't just ask these questions at random. Actually, in these chapters, it is as though God is taking Job on a guided tour of creation and showing Job piece by piece the different categories of his creative handiwork. And so if you follow along with me, I want to just summarize these chapters and walk through them with you. First, you'll notice that God begins in chapter 38 by speaking to Job about astronomy and meteorology. They wouldn't have used those words, but that's what he's speaking of in chapter 38. Astronomy and meteorology. The bulk of this chapter is taken up with the subject of the earth and the sky and the seas and the weather. Job, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 8, Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? Verse 12, Have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Verses 31 and 32. Can you bind up the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? I think you get the point. God tells Job, look at the earth, look at the sky, look at the sea and observe my wonders. And then tell me, Job, If you really want to find fault with me, Job, look at earth and sky and sea and remember that I am God and not you. Then God, in chapter thirty nine, directs Job's attention now to zoology, astronomy and meteorology. And then in chapter thirty nine, zoology, he says, Job, observe the animal kingdom, look around you at the animals Verse 1, do you know the time the mountain goats give birth? Verse 5, who sent out the wild donkey free? Verse 9, will the wild ox consent to serve you, or will he spend the night at your manger? Verse 20, do you make the horse leap like the locust? Verse 26, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Look at the animals, Job, God is saying. You don't even understand their ways, much less do they serve and obey you. So remember, Job, when you see those mountain goats on cliffs that you could never reach. Remember when you see the the hawk soaring and you have no idea how it could be. You remember, Job, that I am God and that you are not. And then after a brief reply from the lips of Job in chapter 40... Verses 3 through 5, which we'll come back to in a few moments. God continued his tour of creation in chapter 40, verses 10 through 14, where he gave Job some brief lessons in anthropology, in the ways of humankind. Just listen to verses 10 through 14 now in their entirety. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity, and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud, and make him low. Look on everyone who is proud and humble him and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. In other words, Job, look at humankind. Look at how I humble the proud. Look at how I am in charge of when they die and go into the dust again. And Job, remember that in the same way that the constellations and the animals are answerable to me, so is mankind. And Job, in fact, so are you. And God says to Job again, I'm God, and you are my creation, you are answerable to me. You are not God. And finally, if God's demonstration of his power over earth and sky and man and animals was not enough to make Job close his mouth and call a halt to his quarrel with his maker, the Lord finally gave Job some lessons in paleontology. In dinosaurs from chapter 40:15 all the way through the end of chapter 41. You'll notice in chapter 40, 15 through 24, that God speaks to Job of Behemoth. And he says again to Job, can you even imagine how big this creature is? It's some sort of giant marsh-dwelling colossus. Some of your Bibles may, in the margin notes, say that Behemoth is a hippopotamus. And many of these verses would seem to fit the description of a hippo, but not verse 17. Verse 17 tells us that his tail is like a cedar. If you've seen a hippo at the zoo, you know that a hippo's tail is not like a cedar, neither is an elephant's tail. And therefore, many scholars have looked at this passage carefully and determined that God must be referring to some sort of dinosaur that we don't any longer see. Some paleontologists even would say perhaps it is a brachiosaurus. If you like dinosaurs, maybe that's what it is. But the point is, Job knew this creature. And God is saying to Job, look at this creature. that You can't even imagine his weight, his size, his power, his strength. You would never get in his face. You would never stand in his way. You would never stand between her and her young. And remember that I made that behemoth. And then another seemingly out of this world creature is described all throughout chapter 41. This time, Leviathan. Is the name. And again, some of your Bibles in the margins may identify Leviathan as a crocodile. And again, some of the verses might fit the description of a crocodile, but it doesn't fit all the way. For Leviathan is described in verses 18 through 21 as breathing out fire. And crocodiles don't do that. Nor do crocodiles raise up on their hind legs as this beast does in verse 25. Indeed, crocodiles are easily actually corralled and controlled by people who know how to handle them. But this beast in verse 26, 27, 28, and 29 is uncontainable. It's unassailable. There's no one like him, God says. And therefore, it stands to reason that this Leviathan, again, was some immense creature. We would picture it as a dragon-like creature breathing fire and being unassailable, Some creature that we today are not experientially acquainted with. A dinosaur. And God is saying to Job again, look at this creature. Look at how no man can contain him. Look at how he strikes fear into all the sons of men. And remember that I created him and he answers to me. And I am God. Now, just as an aside, these passages about dinosaurs here reveal to us that in Job's days, dinosaurs must have been walking along the earth alongside human beings. Otherwise, God would not have asked Job to consider these creatures if he'd never seen them. And God would not have spoken to Job as though he were familiar with them. And so, just inserting this as a helpful aside, it is a significant blow to anyone who believes that you can pinch together and put together an evolutionary understanding of the universe with the testimony of the Bible. You can believe in evolution or you can believe in the Bible, but it's hard to believe in both because if, as in Job, dinosaurs and humans were walking on the earth together, and apparently they were, then the assumptions of evolutionary theory cannot mesh with what the Bible actually teaches. That's an aside, but the main point in chapters 40 and 41 is, again, to remind Job, you are not God. Job must have known, at least with his eyes, these mammoth creatures, creatures that were unapproachable, creatures that were frightening, creatures that were dangerous. And God says to Job, I made them. They answer to me, Job, don't forget that. Don't forget, Job, how small you are and how big I am. No one, chapter 41, verse 10, is so fierce that he dares to rouse Leviathan. Who then is he that can stand before me? Do you get the comparison God is making there? Even Leviathan is so fierce God is saying that no one can stand before them, before him. But I made him. And if he's that fierce and I made him, who is then willing to stand before me? Don't forget that, Job. Don't forget God is saying that I am God and you are not. And all of us need to learn this same lesson. Indeed, we can learn it the same way Job did. We can look around at creation in its wonder, in its complexity, in its grandeur, in its detail, in its danger, and we can realize how little we really know. To be certain, there are some of us who really understand in great detail one or the other of the works God describes in these chapters. There are paleontologists who could say a lot more about the brachiosaurus than I can. And there are zoologists who really do know the time when the mountain goats give birth. But no one, no matter how educated and well versed, knows it all. The man who knows all about the mountain goats probably knows very little about Pleiades and Orion way out in the sky. And the man who knows all about Pleiades and Orion may know very little about mankind and his ways. But God understands it all. And more importantly than God understanding it all, God is teaching us in these chapters that he commands and controls it all. God doesn't just understand how the sunrise works. God, chapter 38, verse 12, commands the morning. God doesn't just know a lot about horses. He is the one, chapter 39, verse 19, who gave them their might. God hasn't just done a great deal of research into the human psyche. He is the one who calls the human psyche to account for its evil deeds, according to chapter 40, verses 12 through 13. He is God. And no matter how much any of us may learn about astronomy, or meteorology, or zoology, or anthropology, or paleontology, or any other ology, we are still merely students. And He is the Master. He is the Creator. And no matter how much we may grasp in the realm of theology, we will never grasp it all. We will never fully understand God and His ways, and we need to remember that. And let me make one other application from God's tour of creation here in chapters 38 through 41. That is, I simply want to remind you that these four chapters, this long pointed reminder that Job is not God, was God's primary answer to Job's questions. In other words, Job, remember, has been asking God, why? Why am I, a godly man, being allowed to suffer? God, why aren't you doing anything to alleviate my pain, to change my circumstances? How can you treat me like this? Is this fair? What did I ever do to deserve this? That's what Job is asking. And what is God's ultimate response to these questions? There are a number of things he could have said, but what does he actually say? God, what did I do to deserve this? I'm not sure if you're really being fair with me. How does he answer? Four chapters worth of Job. Remember, I am God and you are not. I am the Almighty and you are not. Now, I think that answer is very significant. It's not the only answer to Job's questions. Indeed the narrator in chapters 1 and 2 gave us further insight gave us some other answers to the question of why God would allow Job to suffer and the new testament gives us more insight still into these kinds of questions when it reminds us in Romans 8:28 that even when we suffer God works all things together for good to those who love God to those who are called according to his purposes so there are a number of answers that all fit together to make the one big answer as to why this was happening to Job. But it's noteworthy that God did not quote Romans eight twenty eight to Job. Someone says, well, it wasn't written yet, but God wrote it. And so it was true already, wasn't it? God didn't come to Job and say, Job, here's the answer to all of your questions. I'm going to work this for good if you love me and are called to your purposes. That would have been true, but that's not what he said nor did God respond to Job's questions by telling him about the wager in heaven, about the challenge that God made with Satan. In other words, God didn't tell Job any of the secondary reasons for his suffering. When Job wanted to know why, when Job put his finger toward the skies and said, this is not fair, why is this happening to me? God's simple answer was, I am God. And you are. Are not, and that should be enough to keep you from complaining against me. I am God and you are not, and that should be enough to keep you from complaining against me. And again I say that's a very significant answer. God's simple response to Job's accusations, I'm God and you are not, is a strong rebuke to the complaining and murmuring that we ourselves may be tempted to throw sometimes in God's direction. When you're tempted to accuse God, or to grumble to other people about the circumstances that God has left you in, remember Job 38:41, 38, 38 through 41. Look around at creation, and remember how little you know. Look around at creation and remember that you are not God. You are God's creation. You are the clay in His hands. And does not the clay, or excuse me, does not the Potter Romans 9:21 have the right to do with the clay? As seems best to him. That's the point Job is making. God is making to Job in chapters 38 through 41. He is the potter. We are the clay. And we need to remember that always. Someone may reply to that. Okay, so what God is saying here is, don't question God because He's God. Don't question God because He's God. That's what God is saying. And so someone says, don't question God because he's God. Doesn't that sound a little harsh? Isn't that a little bit unfair? Well, maybe it sounds harsh. In fact, I think God intended it to sound harsh to Job. I think you will agree if you've read these chapters that God intended Job to be thrown on his heels. No one can read Job 38 through 41, I don't think, without picking up on the fact that Job is being put in his place that Job is being scolded and that God is none too pleased with him. Job had far overstepped his bounds and he needed to be corrected and corrected apparently somewhat sharply. But the rest of the book reminds us, doesn't it, that God was indeed on Job's side. So when God says to Job, in effect, who are you to question your maker, He wasn't saying that to free himself up to be arbitrary and capricious capricious in handling Job's affairs. God wasn't just saying to Job, Job, I'm God and you're not and I can do whatever I want, so why don't you just shut it? No. We saw in chapters 1 and 2, and we're going to see again next time, that God had wise and loving in Romans eight twenty-eight, kinds of purposes for allowing Job to suffer. And though He didn't explain those things to Job off the top, Job eventually came to see them. So God's reminder to Job in these chapters, Job, you're not God, was not God simply saying, I'm the potter, you're the clay, I can do whatever I want, I can kill you if I want, and so just... Shut your mouth, Job. That's not not what God is saying. God is saying, I'm God. And you, therefore, have to trust that I know better than you do. That's what He's saying. He's not being capricious. He's telling Job, you don't know everything. You can't see everything, but I do know everything. I can see everything. And so your job is not to tell me what to do. Your job is to trust me that I love you and that I will care for you and that I'll fulfill my promises to you. So don't correct me. That's the tone of it. And if God should speak this way to you, the same thing will be true. If he should say to you, don't correct the Almighty, If he should say to you, even in a difficult tone as he says to Job, remember that I am God and that you are not. Remember that he doesn't say that as a cloak for erratic behavior. He says it as a stern but loving reminder that he knows what's best for you because he is God and you are not. He knows what's best for you better than you do. Now I'm reminded here of Jesus and how he had a similar conversation in Mark chapter 8 with another one of God's servants named Peter remember Jesus had just finished describing to the disciples how he'd be handed over to the religious leaders and brutalized and murdered and Peter like Job was incredulous Peter like Job felt that God in the person of his son Jesus needed some correction and so Peter turned to Jesus and says to him you've gone too far you don't know what you're talking about Jesus you can't allow this to happen and Peter gets the same kind of response as Job does in chapters 38 through 41 of this book. Jesus replied to Peter with words that must have been stinging to the core. Mark 8:33, "Get behind me, Satan." In other words, Peter, you are the one who doesn't know what you're talking about. Peter, don't correct me. Peter, You just said in verse 29 that you believe I'm the Christ. Now act like it. I'm God. And you're not. In fact, right now, Peter, you're acting like the devil. And it's the same kind of conversation we find in the book of Job, isn't it? Jesus was quite harsh with his disciple. But was he being unfair? Was he telling Peter to pipe down just because, hey, I'm the Messiah and I can tell Peter whatever I want to tell Peter? That's not the intent behind his harsh words. He was cutting Peter off because he knew some things that Peter didn't know. He knew some things that would make Peter's protests seem quite foolish. He knew that his suffering was actually going to result in our salvation. And that's why he told Peter to can it. Not because he's capricious and because he can tell Peter to can it any time he wants, but because as very God of very God, Jesus knew some things that Peter didn't know. And he knows some things that you don't know and that I don't know too. And aren't we glad that he does? Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't bend to Peter's complaints? Aren't we glad that he stopped Peter in his tracks? Aren't we glad that Jesus didn't say, okay, Peter? You know what I'll take your assessment of things under advisement and um, maybe you're right so let's talk this through and if you if you say so I won't allow myself to be arrested and I won't allow them to crucify me of course he didn't say that and we're glad he didn't say that we're glad that he cut Simon Peter off and that he put Simon Peter in his place because he knew some things that Simon Peter didn't know and our salvation is bound up in those things that Peter didn't know isn't it Jesus wasn't dying without purpose and he wasn't dying as a political religious kind of martyr what Peter didn't know was that Jesus was actually going to the cross to die for Peter's sins even for the sins that Peter was committing right in that moment and that Jesus was going to the cross to die for your sins and my sins do you believe that do you believe that Jesus died for your sins i hope you do and if you do, aren't you glad that he put Peter in his place that day in Mark 8? And if you're glad about that, then remember Peter and remember Job when God should see fit to put you in your place. Don't be offended by it. Don't think that he's telling you to be quiet just because he can. Be glad that he's stopping you in your tracks. Because he must have some information that you aren't privy to. Information that you'll probably really like if you'll just simmer down and stop murmuring and just wait and listen. If you can think back with me to the analogy about parenting, you'll understand what I mean. Sometimes when you were little, your parents may have warned you don't correct your father, don't argue with your mother. Remember, son, that you are the child and I am the parent. And at the time, maybe it sounded harsh and some of our parents perhaps were harsh. But at the time, you thought you had a case. You thought, man, my parents are crazy. They're out of touch. They think they can just tell me what to do because they're my parents and because it's their right. And you certainly thought it was a bit unfair for them simply to say to you, don't argue with me. I'm your mother. But... If you had good parents, and many of you did, you've grown up and you've realized that they weren't being capricious with their authority. They weren't telling you to hush just because they could. They were quieting you down and quashing your arguments because they knew some things that you didn't. Because they were the adult and you were the child because they knew what was best for you better than you knew what was best for you. And you look back now on such parents with grateful hearts. Make sure you do the same also with your Heavenly Father. When He says to you, Don't correct me. I'm your Father. Don't argue with me, Son. Remember those childhood days and remember that God, your Heavenly Father, probably knows some things that you don't too. He knows you and He knows what's best for you better than you ever could. After all, you're not God. Now, just very, very briefly, we need to ask one final question. And that is, how did Job respond? How did Job respond? What did Job say in response to four chapters worth of God rebuking him? Well, we get a full response in chapter 42, and we'll look carefully at it next time. But even here, in chapter 40, Job gave an initial reply to God's accusations. Read it with me in verses 3 Through 5. After God says, Who are you to reprove me? The Almighty Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice and I will add nothing more. Can I summarize what Job is saying as we conclude? Just two things, really. First of all, Job says, I'm not God. I'm not God. Specifically, directly, he says, I am insignificant, verse 4. What can I reply to you? That's the way he put it. Isn't that helpful? God has been telling Job, You are not God. And how does Job reply? By agreeing, Job doesn't say, Yeah, I know I'm not God, but you don't have to tell me so harshly. You don't have to be so forceful about it. No, God is forceful, and Job simply bows his head and agrees You're right. I'm insignificant. I didn't create the wind. I don't know where you store the snow, chapter 38, verse 22. I can't tame the wild ox. I can't corral Leviathan. I'm insignificant. I am not God. Can you say that with Job? And will you say it to God today? And more importantly, will you be willing to say it in the dark hour when things are confused and when things don't go the way you like? Will you be able to say then, I am insignificant? I'm not God. If you can say that and really believe it, then you will have learned the main lesson of Job, chapters 38 through 41. I am not God. Secondly and finally, Job said, I'll stop talking now. I'll stop talking now. Verse 4b, I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. He just says, you're God, I'm not God, so... I'll just, I'll just be quiet. That's what we all need to do sometimes, isn't it? Especially in God's presence. Humbly ask your questions, yes. Voice your concerns, yes. Tell Him all about your sorrows, yes. But then be willing to accept in faith whatever answer He gives or doesn't give. And don't murmur or argue or correct Him. Accept his answers to you, however vague or incomplete you may feel them to be. Receive his rebuke when it's necessary, and then lay your hand on your mouth, because you believe that he knows best, and fall to the ground and worship. And when you do, know that God will see your faith and be pleased. For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good.